This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight, we are going on the next Maka, and that is the Maka of Barah, the Maka of Hail. So, we did discuss in the last class, as well as in quite a few classes, the purpose of these makas. So we know that the Ramban, Nachmanides, goes and classifies people that do not believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the three different categories. So one of them is that people don't believe that God created the world. Another one is that they may believe that He created the world, but He doesn't actively intervene into the world. And the third one is that He may have created the world. He may have... He may intervene in the world, but it doesn't mean that he has absolute power, meaning to change nature, in the world. So the makas were split up to answer all these questions and to sort of, uh, for all future generations, to show that God created the world, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu intervenes in the world, and that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has the absolute power to change nature. So the first three makas, the dams for the and blood, frogs, and lice, that shows that God created the world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world. The second set of three, which is wild beasts, pestilence, and boils, which we discussed last week, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu intervenes into the world. And the final set of three, which we just started, you know, today, Bezalat Hashem, is Hail Locust and Makas Choshech, uh, Darkness, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has the power of of changing nature, meaning that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has absolute power. So until now, you can think of the Makos as sort of a crash course to people that don't believe in God. Paro, so far, got six out of the ten crash uh, courses uh, that uh, is uh, represented by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, Paro knows at the first th- six makos that Hashem created the world and Hashem intervenes in the world. But now what we're going to begin on our journey of the next three makos is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has complete power. Because this Paro does not have yet, uh, you know, an understanding. Meaning that maybe Paro would think that there's other gods and other gods have powers. There's powers of good, there's powers of evil, there's powers of cold, there's powers of hot. And maybe, maybe a god created the world, but there's other powers that, that can, uh, that can overcome. And that's where we come to the, the Maka of today. And that's the Maka of Barad, where it takes different parts of the creation and combines it together. Uh, uh, I guess as a spoiler alert, hot and cold for an example. So the other part of the introduction that we do need to discuss is that we said that every Maka corresponds to one of the 10 Ma'amaras, meaning that Kedesh Baruch created the world with 10 sayings. Each Maka corresponds to one of the 10 sayings. Which Maka does the Maka of Barad, of Hail, correspond to? So it's the, it's the, um, it's the Ma'amar, it's the, of, in Bereshis, the first chapter, the sixth Pasuk. It says, And Baruch Hu said, let there be a sky, meaning that Kedesh Baruch Hu separated the waters of below and the waters of above. This of the one of the reasons and we'll soon see is that Barad hail that came from the sky and this corresponds to that to that mimer. Now this Maka came in with a more warning. We, we, we said before that not all Makas came with warning. It came in, in a pattern of two with warning and one without warning. So last Maka was without warning. This Maka was with warning. Now the idea of warnings uh, before you do something 
is not something that a mortal king will do. A mortal king will not say, hey, I'm going to attack you from this, from the south side of your kingdom, and I'm going to use this, you know, this method of attacking you. They're not going to go and not going to explain exactly the method of attack. Because one of the most important aspects of attack, of offensive, uh, uh, you know, attack especially, is the element of surprise. If you're going to tell somebody where you're going to hit them, they're not going to be surprised. So there's, they, they lose that element of surprise. But, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not a mortal king, and he's not fighting in the same playing field that other mortal kings are fighting. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you want it? I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do, and there is nothing, nothing that you could do to stop him. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe Rabbeinu to go and warn Paro. Now, Paro has been, you know, came to the realization that Moshe knows where to find him. Paro, in the first, you know, few makas, claimed that he was God. And he did one of the powers that he uh, claimed that he had is he did it, he didn't need to go to the bathroom. However, uh, we all know that he was very human and he had to go to the bathroom. And the way that he went to the bathroom is he went into the Nile, and the Nile was his uh, his bathroom. So. Paro realized that Moshe Rabbeinu always finds him in the Nile. Now he started figuring out different places where Paro is going to be so that Moshe is not going to be able to find him to warn him. It's sort of the like a little kid who's like, if you don't tell this to me, it's not going to happen. So Paro is running around, you know, hiding over here, hiding over here. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu always tells Moshe Rabbeinu he's going to be located at this or this area at this time. That's where you're going to go find him. And Moshe Rabbeinu finds him exactly where it is. Imagine the frustration, right? Imagine you have two kids playing hide and seek. And one kid within like six seconds, like always finds it. And they're like, what? Like, you've got to be kidding me. How are you always finding me? Is there like cameras over here? Is someone telling you? Are you cheating? How are you getting this? And this is how Paro felt. Like every time Paro switched his routine and found somewhere else, you know, Hagadish Baruch goes over to Moshe and it was like, He's like, he's gonna be over here. And Moshe Rabbeinu runs a bit like, tata trio, found power, you know, like, uh, you know, a free for all. And Paro is always caught at the, the, the time that he is the most vulnerable. So, Akadish Baruch told Moshe Rabbeinu where to find Paro, and Paro, and, and Moshe found Paro, you know, very, very quickly. And Moshe warns Paro, and he tells Paro, before he even begins the warning of the Maka, he says, you know, don't think that you're so strong that you have lasted so many makas until now because you're powerful, because anything else. HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have killed you long, long ago. HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose to keep you alive, number one, to have mercy, to show that I have mercy, and not like a mortal king that the second, well, how does, how does a mortal king fight, uh, you know, against another kingdom? The first place that you want to attack, it's its leadership, it's its rulership. That's how you crumble the economy, that's how you crumble Crumble the you know the the the, the commander in chief. That's how you crumble everything. If if you take the top person, everybody else is scrambling, and that's why a lot of the modern civilizations they always have a hierarchy of like, okay, who's going to go next, and who's going to go if this person dies, and who's going to go if this person dies, just to prevent this disruption of of order. So Hakadosh Baruch Hu tells you know Moshe to tell Paro, don't think that I didn't you know kill you because I can't kill you. I could have easily killed you. A mortal king, that's the first step they would have taken Paro out. That's what, and then they could conquer the, the, the rest of the country. But a mortal king can't control themselves. They have to do whatever is easiest, whatever. They can't control the anger. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I don't need to take you out. I could leave you here the whole time and I could show you and how I could tear your country apart with you still in power. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu tells Paro, 
uh, the way that they used to tell time in the olden days was through a sundial, right? So depending on where the sun would, would shine, they could tell the time of the day. So Moshe hit a little, uh, you know, scratch a little part of the wall, and he says when the sun hits this part tomorrow, that's when the maka of bar, the maka of hail is going to begin. And the Malbim explains, and it says, you know, this, the Egyptians thought they would be able to use against Moshe Rabbeinu. They said, wait a minute. He says, you're claiming that there's going to be a plague of hail. So if there's going to be a plague of hail, there comes with, you know, a, a slew of things. There is the hail pieces, there's the thunder, there's the lightning, there's different parts. But not everything happens at the same time, right? We know that, for example, in thunder and lightning, light travels faster than sound. And that's why if you're ever in a storm and you see lightning, you first see the lightning and only later, a few seconds later, or depending how far it is, you hear the thunder. Meaning, so the Egyptian saw it says, oh, you think, he says, like, here's where we're going to be able to prove that. Moshe notched it out. He says, there's no way that everything is going to happen at the same time. Like, even the hail, it takes a few seconds to get from the, from, from the sky all the way down. There's a sky, there's a thunder, there's a lightning, there's a hail, there's so many factors over here. Here is where we're going to prove out that Moshe is, doesn't have that power that he claims to have. So, oh, and furthermore, Chaim Kanevsky asks, says, why is it that this is the only maka that Moshe has to make a notch and says, oh, when it gets over here, that's when it's going to get to start. And Reb Chaim answers that, you know, hail, even though there is nothing usual about the hail that we're soon going to learn about that fell in Egypt, but hail does fall. There is there are storms that have you know have hail, and being that it's a partially normal thing to happen, Hakadosh Baruch Hu wanted to show Paro that it's going to happen exactly at the right time. Meaning that even if you have you know in in uh, uh, the technology that we have today, and you can pinpoint of when rain will start. You, they never are able to pinpoint exactly it's going to start at 3.37 p.m. They're never able to. They're able to say based off, it's going to be 50% at this time, it's going to be 20% at this time, it's going to be 80%, it's going to be 100% at this time, so then you know it's going to start. But they never know exactly when it's going to start. And sometimes when it's 30%, it actually rains. And when it's 100%, you know, it rains a little bit later. So they don't get a pinpoint. It's very, it's, it's impossible to pinpoint exactly the time that it will begin. Meaning that Akadish Baruch Hu is, is, is preempting any question that's going to come later and say, oh, wait, maybe it was some sort of freak nature storm that came in at that exactly time. Akadish Baruch Hu saying, no, no, no. I'm going to pinpoint exactly the time, and the second that the sun hits that notch, that's when it's going to go. That's when it's going to begin. So Moshe Rabbeinu continues with his warning, and he says, "Those that fear Hakadosh Baruch Hu, those that fear God, they can prevent damage by bringing in their livestock, bringing in their animals into their homes, and that will prevent them from being killed by the hailstorm." Now, again, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky asks, "So wait a minute," he says, "Moshe Rabbeinu did not." You know, warn them to prevent it, but let's say by Dever, by, by, uh, by, by other Makkas, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't warn them, bring them inside. Why is it that in this Makkah, Moshe is saying, oh, you want to save your livestock, bring it inside? And the answer is for, in, in, let's say for example, in the plague of pestilence, where all the animals died, the purpose of the plague was to get the animals to die. The, the Egyptians had many, many, uh, gods that they worshipped. One of them was the god of the sheep. So the purpose of that maka was to show that your god has no power. It's a false god. It's a fake god. You made it up out of your imagination. You're, you're, you're literally praying to an animal, to a sheep. Similar to how some people these days 
for whatever reasons, pray takau that we cannot begin to understand. Right? They they put something that they sh- I want to destroy them to show that there is no power in in the sheep. The maka of hail had nothing to do about that. What it ready was was you know proven that they have no power because all the sheep died. The but the idea of this maka was not to destroy the animals per se, but if you leave the animals on side, then it's going to be destroyed. So at this point, when Moshe warns, you know, the Paro and everybody around that if they want to save their animals, bring them inside, there was conflicting views of Paro's advisors. At one hand, you had Ilv. Ilv was Paro's advisor at this time. And he said, why? He says, we should all bring our animals in. I'm like, this Moshe Rabbeinu so far has been six for six. Everything that he said has been accurate. He has not, you know, like he has a good streak. Like, we should bring the animals inside. And that was Eov's strong opinion. Bilam, on the other hand, was another advisor of Paro at the time. And he says, no. Bilam says, no, we have to stand strong in our position. This is, oh, this is a saying that sort of destroys people's relationship, the following thing. Bilam goes in and says, it's a matter of principle. Oh, principle destroys relationships. Principle destroys Parnassa's families so much. And Bilam goes and spews this nonsense out. It's a matter of principle. Oh, he says, we have to leave the livestock out. What type? A fool, imbecile, someone who has no... How could you have such a high level of arrogance where somebody predicts, you know, six out of... Everything that come has out of Moshe Rabbeinu's mouth has been true. And now Moshe Rabbeinu says, this is going to destroy your sheep. So please bring it inside if you want to go and save it. And somebody goes, no, I'm not going to bring it inside. Why? Like, what do you do? Like, you could just show you how far arrogance can destroy you by, there's, there, there, I don't know how much clearer you can be. At this point, we're going to take a pause on this very, very difficult to understand point. And we're going to, I'm going to touch this, you know, Merit Hashem a little bit later. But going on to, to the, to going back to the Makkah, the Makkah, the, the, the plague of hail, was something very, very miraculous. The plague of hail was going to combine water and fire. Now, anybody that's been alive since whenever they've been alive knows that water and fire do not mesh together, right? They do not go hand in hand together, right? Water takes out fire or fire removes water through boiling. But in this particular maca, the water, the well, better yet, the ice did not cool off the fire and the fire did not melt the ice, you can think of it as you have two families, two clans, let's call it, that have been in a feud for ye- generations. Forget about years. Generations and generations. Every clan tried to get the other clan back, like destroy them in any way. And one day they get uh, notice that there is a common danger. There is a foreign king, a very mighty king, that's invading their territory. And the only way they'll be able to fight back is if they team up together. So they put their quarrel on the side, they team up together, they join forces, and they fight the invasion. This is what happened during the Maka of Bara, during the Maka of, of, uh, of Hail. The fire and water were two opposing forces. They joined forces together to go against Egypt. Now there is a conflicting, there's a machlokas on how exactly the hail looked. There was one opinion that there was fire inside, 
and there was the hail, the ice, was, the hail was ice. It was ice around it. So meaning that you had fire inside and ice around it. The other opinion was that there was, uh, you know, ice on the bottom and fire on the top, similar to like sort of a candle, uh, that was there. And, and the, idea behind these two aspects of fire or ice and water is these are two weapons that HaKadosh Baruch Hu uses very frequently against the Rishayim, the wicked people. You look at fire that was destroyed. That's how Sodom was destroyed through fire. And you look at water, an example is the flood. The flood was destroyed with with water. Also, when you you learn, if you do ever learn about Gehenim, um, a place that no one wants to go, there is a Gehenim of ice, and then there's a the shalag with snow, and then there's a Gehenim of fire. There's cold and fire. And there's something very interesting that when you, because very often Gehenim is, is, people think of it as burnt. If you have ever put your foot into like ice, like really cold or really hot, you get, your body is confused for like a moment or so. It's like, wait a minute, is this cold or hot? Like you're very, very confused. Like I remember I once went into a mikvah that was boiling hot, like boiling, boiling hot. And the second I went in, I went, I was like, ooh, this is so cold. And later my, it registered and I'm like, nope. I'm burning. Uh, that's what's happening right now. The, you know, like it, your your brain, and it's very interesting because burning the sensation comes in sort of in those in these two uh, um, in these two extremes. So the way that the Maka began is that the, the plague began with first gentle rain. And the reason why Kaddish Baruch Hu did this, reason why God did this, is that give them the opportunity to do tshuva, to do repentance. But the second that they they, they weren't doing repentance, the hailstorm, the 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 plague of hail struck suddenly. The the thunder and the lightning, and the hail all came together at the same time. Meaning that sometimes you know you're you're out outside. And especially in the summer, or especially if you're in tropical areas where you see some thunder lightning, you're like, okay, I better get indoors fast. Something's brewing up there, right? Something's coming down, and it's not going to be delicious for me to be out here. In the Makov bar, the Makov hail, there was no, it was like everything was like instant at the same time. You saw the lightning, you heard the noise, and the hail came down at the same time. Everything was in one shot. There was no escape. And the first few moments, Everything was like, it was like a shock to the Egyptians. There was like, there was like a slew of emotions that was going for them. First of all, there was a tremendous amount of noise. To understand the noise, the noise was not a normal thunder noise. It was a deafening noise, a noise that shook the ground. Like, it shook the ground to that, that, to the sense that people ended up suffering. The Egyptians at that point, they suffered like these, these mental nervous diseases that uh, Rabbeinu Bache goes and explains that they suffered mental issues because of how loud and scary the noises are. You know, sometimes hearing the noise is more scarier than seeing the issue. Like imagine you're barricaded yourself inside and all you hear is these explosions. You don't know what's going on. So every explosion, it's almost you feel like your neshama is leaving you. Like, oh, like what, you know what's happening? And like the shaking and the thunder. It was, sleep? Forget about it. The, the duration of this thing. How do you sleep in that? You could put white noise on the loudest setting possible. You can have boom boxes all around your, your eardrums, but you cannot escape this noise. So they couldn't sleep. They were constantly bombarded by this terrifying noise. The 
to tell you how bad this noise was, is that when Paro ran to Moshe Rabbeinu and begged him to stop it, the words that he used, and if you look in the Pasuk in, in uh, Shemos chapter 9, verse 28, it says, He tells Moshe and Aaron, go and entreat, pray to God, the Rav uh, Barat. get rid of the, what was first? First is the kailas, first is the noise, get rid of the noise and the hail. Meaning the noise was so painful, it was so harmful that it destroyed them. And even in the ancient, in ancient, uh, wars, the way that people in hand-to-hand combat, the, the, the power of noise is so powerful is that people used to scream in battle. And one of the reasons they, they, they would, they, it would produce fear into the enemy. So could you imagine, this is a, in a time where missiles didn't exist, explosions didn't exist, bombs didn't, noise, the loudest noise that you can make was either with your mouth or with an instrument like a shofar or a horn that you're able to produce a lot of noise. You're talking about something over here, a noise that has never heard before. And not only the noise you had, then the explosion that came when these hailstones, when these rockets landed on the ground, the way that it happened is that when this ball of ice with fire, when it struck the ground, it burst open. And what happened was when the ice burst open, there was fire. But there was something miraculous that happened is that the ice crashed, burst open, fire, then the fire burst open and there was ice inside that also, sort of bursting him. The way that I could explain it is the way that the, uh, you know, the Arab terrorists, that they, they, they make bombs, especially things of, let's say, of suicide bombs or, or, or bombs that they want to hurt people, is they put an explosion and then they put uh, you know, pieces of glass or, or, or nails inside the explosion. As a second that the explosion happens, it shoots all these, these nails and pieces of metal all over and that could hurt people as well. So this bomb, I don't know what other way to explain it. Other hail was a bomb. It was a bomb that had ice in fire in ice that just like exploded upon exploded. It's like a secondary explosion. I believe they have these types of missiles where it explodes and then, you know, in the initial and then it explodes again upon impact. There's another explosion that happens, meaning an explosion within an explosion. So the effect that this had is, first of all, it destroyed all the grass, all the fruits, all the trees. The only the 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 vegetation that didn't de- were destroyed was the wheat the buckwheat and the the spelt this was still flexible at this point in time and it wasn't destroyed one of the reasons that it wasn't destroyed was that it will give something for the next maca the maca of locust it would give it something to be able to devour so this was the last thing that 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 held strong but more on that you know there's not when we speak about the maca of of grasshoppers so the destruction of this was was twofold there was a destruction of ice and there was a destruction of fire meaning that when this when people got hit by this hail at one point they were destroyed they, they sort of were frozen with ice to a certain extent and they were then burnt with fire i you have to use your imagination in this you have to just like picture this for a second because frozen in ice the way the medrash explains it it's when you think frozen in ice like you think of someone staying in a freezer for a long time. But think of, imagine you have a gun and this gun can shoot frozen ice and, you know, like sort of like freezes the person in there. Growing up, I remember playing a video game 
I don't know if it still exists today. Um, so uh, if anybody that doesn't know what video games are, it's a tool of wasting your life. And this video game, uh, it was called Mortal Kombat. Again, I, I don't know if this still exists now. It was, a, you know, back then it was like a great game. You know, growing up, it was like, oh, Mortal Kombat. And one of the people there, I don't remember the the uh, character, whatever his name, was able to freeze people. He was able to, like, shoot ice out of himself. I think it was his his hands. He was able to shoot ice and would be able to freeze the person. And the person would be just, like, stuck in ice. Now, imagine that scene. Where you have an Egyptian, you know, running, you know, he's got the hat over there. For whatever reasons, Egyptians did not wear shirts. They were very buff. They worked out a lot. They had hairless, also, whatever, different story. And they got their belt over there, you know, uh, very, you know, whatever. Sneas belt, uh, Sneas place was not in effect over there. And they were running away and they're about to run. And then all of a sudden there was like, and they froze in like mid-air, like, and they were like just stuck there. And then like just imagine that scene. And then what happened was it exploded and then fire. So they were like, ah, and then like burst into flames. It was like a phoenix. So, like, you know, just like burst into flames and those like crumbled into like nothingness, uh, pulverized into like, uh, you know, all of a sudden they got frozen and cremated at the same time. It's like a crazy, like, like just picture that for a second. A big point of what I want to bring these classes is for you to realize, use your imagination a little bit, right? Let it run wild a little bit, like picture what happened over here. So the Egyptians were frozen and then they were burnt also. And the size of of these hailstones were not like, you know, like hailstones that you see now. If you have, I don't know, whenever we get hail over here, it's it's not that big, but we get it every once in a while. And whenever I'm driving and it's hail, I'm always nervous, like it's going to break the windshield, like something's going to happen. It hasn't happened like that. But small pieces of hail. The size of hail that were in Mitzrayim was minimally, it was six closed adult male fists. So you take six of these, right? At a minimum, you're saying five inches times six. That's 30 feet. What's 30 feet? That's two and a half, 30 inches. I'm sorry, feet. Uh, you'd say five inches per fist at minimum, right? Times six. You have, that's 30 inches. That's, that's two and a, imagine that a two and a half feet ball of ice and fire, but not just like one. It's raining it, right? Have you ever seen rain? It's not like one, one. Well, you know, it's raining. It's every two seconds. It's bombarded with explosions after explosion. Now, this was destroying houses, was destroying buildings, was destroying trees, crops, everything. Animals were destroyed. Now, when this happened, all at the same time, the Egyptians were like, oh, wait, it's real. Like, what are we going to do? They're like, ah. They were like in the middle. And then they said, okay, let's try to save our animals. So they try to run out into the field. And whenever the, 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 the miraculous thing about the, the, the maka was that it not only exploded, it also was able to create walls and barriers, meaning they were trying to run to this, like their, their, one of their animals. And there was all of a sudden like Tetris, like came down. Ah, man, why am I forgetting the tune? Whatever it is, the tune of Tetris, right? You always remember it. And it's going down, and all of a sudden, it's like, and it's like blocking everything up, and you just like couldn't get to it. And then when the Egyptians tried to run out, they had another wall of Tetris right behind them of hail that was just closed them up. There was a solid wall of ice and fire. 
Now, at this point, there were like the the animals were getting killed, right? There were just like missiles were shooting down and just hitting the animals, and they were killing the 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 Egyptians. They were like, at least let us use the meat. So they tried to grab some, you know, cut the animal up, get some pieces of meat, put it on their shoulder, and run back in. And what Kadesh Baruch Hu did is like Kadesh Baruch Hu sent these birds of prey. I don't know if you have ever seen birds of prey, right? So you see birds like. I, you know, I live in New Jersey. I see birds that I've never seen before in Brooklyn, right? These are birds that when, you know, they, you're sitting outside in your backyard and all of a sudden there is a shadow that comes from the sun. We're only used to it. This with like planes, but like I've seen it with like birds. Like, wait, what, what just happened? You know, you look up and there's like nothing there. You're like, what's happening? Oh no. You know, like, and there's like, you know, like you hear like an eerie sound in the distance. And you're like, oh no, everybody inside. Imagine these huge birds that were flying over there. I don't know if you've ever been to, let's say, the boardwalk and you throw, well, you should be because you throw your Averos, right? right? Again, something we have to explain. We're like, you know, like Jews don't, do not understand this concept, right? It comes after Rosh Hashanah. We're like, okay, let's throw our, you know, our sins into the water and we throw the things. And you see those seagulls? If they're hungry, they're able to swoop down before that bread hits the water. They're like, and they grab it and they eat it. If you get there late, you don't see this, right? Because you have, especially in Brooklyn, you go into the, the boardwalk over there. By the second day where people, have, the birds are full already, right? They have eaten everyone's Averis. But if you go early and you throw bread in there, the birds are, are able, the seagulls are there, are able to grab it before it hits the ground. Now, these are seagulls. These are like, you know, cutish, whitish, you know, like, Birds. Imagine these huge birds of prey are swooping down and they're eating the stuff that's on your back, right? I don't think you're going to be holding it and you're going to be like, all right, you know, like, come on, Eagle. You know, let's take the, let's take it. You're going to be dropping that and running for the hills. These Egyptians tried to save some meat and these birds of prey just came and literally ate the meat while it was on the people's back. So the Egyptians couldn't even save the meat. The Maka of Bara, the Maka of Hell, it fell everywhere, but it did not fall in Goshen. Goshen is where the Jewish people lived. So the Egyptians saw this, and they were like, okay, so let us go and find safe haven in Goshen. So they started running into Goshen. And what happened was with the hail, it sort of became these precision-targeted missiles where the hail would be coming down, and all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, where is this guy going? And it's like, change direction, recalculating. And it just like sort of like, and imagine this scene, right? Imagine, like to take an understanding of this, Imagine it starts raining and, you know, you take out an umbrella, but then you look around and you're like, it's not raining. It's only raining in my four feet. What's going on? And you look up and there's like one cloud just raining on you. And for a second, you think you're in a cartoon. And you're like, what? And you start running away from the cloud. And the cloud just like follows you wherever you go, right? It's like you can't, first of all, you'll go berserk. You'll go crazy. You're like, what's happening over here? Like, stop it. You know, you start talking to the cloud. You start screaming at the cloud. Like, stop it. Leave me alone. Like, what are you doing? And you go, imagine what's happening over here. Hail is falling down. Regular, normal hail. Egyptians are running. All of a sudden, the, the hail is like, and it's like zigzagging through. The Egyptian is trying to dodge it. And the hail is like, just like this precision missile, you know, going directly with GPS accuracy exactly where the Egyptian is happening, where, where the Egyptian is. 
And the Egyptians try to ride into Goshen. The hail just zigzag exactly where they are and destroys them where they are. They could not run away from it. What happened if you have a Jew live, that was in Egypt at the time? In, when, in, in the proper where the hail was happening, hail was falling all around, but inside, sunshine and rain, well, not rainbows, rainbows not a good thing. But it was sunshine, it was great, there was no issues for the Jew that was in Egypt during the time that there was a hailstorm. Now, some of the Egyptians had properties with ownership of a Jew. So the way that it worked with the hail is the hail only destroyed the property part of where the Egyptian owned. Wherever the Egyptian owned, that's where it destroyed the Jew. It sort of kept completely, like, there were miracles upon miracles upon miracles upon miracles upon miracles upon miracles upon miracles that were happening during this time. There was, there, there was like no way that you could say, well, uh, guess all nature happened, you know, somehow the Venus came close and Mars pulled out and this came in and that came out. You start making all these, there was no way because there were so many miracles. Now we know that Akadish Baruch Hu does everything Mida connected Mida, measure for measure. So what was the reason that Akadish Baruch Hu put the Mida, the, the Maka of Barak? And so, number one is that the Egyptians used to send the Jewish people to plant and seed in the fields. And they would keep them away from their families as you have to go to the fields. And not always the fields were in the backyard. Sometimes the fields were in the outskirts of town. People lived very close together and the fields were outskirts. So the Egyptians used to send the Jews out and they used to keep the Jews away from the families because they would have to be worked in the field. Now, Akadosh Baruch Mida Mida took them away from the families by by sending the hailstorm to destroy anything that the Jews helped create for you now was destroyed. The Egyptians also did not allow the Jewish people to rest in the grass or in the shade of the trees. So now the grass was destroyed and the, and the trees were destroyed. The Egyptians also used to beat the Jews with stones. And not only that, they used to scream at them, uh, abusively screaming at them and taunting them with the, you know, negative language that they would use. Now the, uh, the hailstones where Mida Kanega Mida were being pelted by the Egyptians, just like they used to throw stones at the Jews. Now, Akadish Baruch was throwing stones at them. And just like they used to, like, abuse them verbally, now the noise hurt them also in, in, uh, uh the, from, from, uh, in the same way for the verbal aspect. They also used the, to force the Jews to sleep outdoors with the animals. Now, Mida Kanega Mida, the Egyptians are gonna have to sleep with their animals by bringing them indoors. The Egyptians also used to make them have very demeaning tasks. The purpose of these tasks was just to embarrass the Jew. So the Jew would do, would have to do these tasks, but they would be white with shame. Now, the Egyptians were white, but not out of shame, but rather out of fear. So everything was Mida Kanega uh, Mida, measure for measure. The maka of, of hail, the, the plague of hail, like crumbled the Egyptian economy. First of all, it destroyed its food supply, whatever it had left at this point. Commerce, business at this point came to a standstill. Poverty for the first time was over Egypt. All the Egyptians, they tried to run to their temples, they tried to run anything, but nothing, uh, nothing prevailed. And in fact, it's something very interesting. So the Ippawar Papyrus, it's a document, an uh, ancient Egyptian document during this time, actually writes in there something very, this is a Egypt, nothing to do with Judaism, it's a completely Egyptian document, um, writes something very interesting, you know, like resembling this maka, where, and I want to quote over here, uh, well, in not in Egyptian, ancient Egyptian, mostly because I don't know, uh, but so I will quote in English, the trees are 
ruined. No fruits, no vegetables are to be found. Green has perished everywhere. The land is desolated. Gates, columns, and walls are consumed by fire. The sky is in confusion. It's almost destroyed all mankind. This is a direct quote of what the Ipoar Papyrus, the Egyptian document during this time, wrote. Now, this destroyed the economy. So at this point, Paro runs, well, tries, begs to Moshe Rabbeinu to stop it. As stubborn and arrogant as Paro was, he had to swallow his pride because his entire kingdom was being destroyed. It was literally a, a, uh, a hailstorm of, of hail, but like of bombs and explosions that were just destroying his entire kingdom. And Paro said something in this Makkah that he never said before. And he said this, this is a Pasuk in Shemites chapter 9 verse 27. Uh, and the passage begins that Moshe, that Paro called Moshe and Aaron, and he says, I, he tell God, I have sinned this time. Hashem Tzadik, God is righteous, and me and my people are the guilty ones, are the wicked ones. Meaning, this is the first time that Paro said, I was wrong, and God was right. God was righteous, and I was wrong. This, was a major change for Paro. He had, here he had actually acknowledged Akadish Baruch's authority. And at this point, the Arachayim explains that he thought Moshe and Aaron were just better magicians than whatever he had, or he, or that he was. Now, even though in previous makas, his magicians himself told him, this is an Ezbalakim, this is a finger of God, he still believed to some point that there was magic. But when he saw that there was fire and water that mixed together, he's like, magic can't do that. He had, he, he realized Hakadish Barhu's power. Now, because he, even though he, he broke his promise again and again, but because he admitted that God was right, this saved him from death. He did not die in the Makos. He did not die in Makos Becharos. He did not even die in the splitting of the sea, in the Kriyas Yamsuf. And in fact, he survived that. And it's very interesting. Maybe we'll discuss that at a later point when we speak about either Kriyas Yamsuf or, uh, we, we speak about the, um, the Bacchus Brachos, which is just an FYI. My plan for this extended series is after we finish the, the Makas, uh, the, the 10 Makas, I want to go through what happened in Kriyas Yamsuf as well in, in really in detail. But in any case, uh, Paro survived that. And Paro, after he survived the, the splitting of the sea, he was too disgraced to return to Egypt. He did not return to Egypt. And in fact, what happened was he went to a place called Assyria, um, and he became the king of a country called Nineveh. Nineveh became a very, very popular country because we read about it in uh, um, in, in Yonah and uh, on, on Yom Kippur. Nineveh was a very corrupt and immoral society. They committed murder. They committed a lot of bad things. And the Shabbat said the pro- sent the prophet Yonah to warn them to do tshuva. These are non-Jewish people. He warned them to do tshuva. When Paro heard that the God of the Jews is telling them to do tshuva, he remembered what happened by the ten plagues. He remembered what happened, and he tore his garments. He took off his royal. Gro- he put ashes on his head. He instituted a three-day fast, and he said, "Whoever defied this fast, he told his his you know his his kingdom." is going to be burned at the stake. Men, women, and children were separated from each other. Like he went through a serious tshuva process and he did, the whole city did tshuva and HaKadosh Baruch Hu speared the city of Nineveh. So that's for what, you know, Paro was able, and one of the reasons why he was able to survive was because of what happened during this Makkah, that he, uh, he 
admitted that God was righteous and he was wrong. And that gave him, look at the power of just what one, one saying, one sentence gave him. So in any case, he said that I am wrong and he begged Moshe Rabbeinu, please pray for me. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'll pray for you, but I have to leave the city because your city is full of idols. So Paro is like, why are you telling me this? Like, you have never done this to me before. You have never told me that you have to leave the city. Like, what's the difference? Just do your thing, whatever it is that you're doing. And Moshe Rabbeinu explained to him, and he says, you know, every time that I took away a Makkah, I said it's going to happen the next day. Now I'm telling you that it's going to happen immediately, but I have to pray for it first. Meaning that there is going to be a delay. And I want you to realize where that delay is coming because it's going to stop when I leave the city and I'm able to pray. So Moshe, so Pyro is like, do what you got to do, just get it done. And Moshe Rabbeinu leaves the second that he gets out 70 almost 70 cubits from the city. Moshe Rabbeinu raises his hands up in prayer to start davening, but before he's even able to utter a word of prayer, Hakadosh Baruch Hu put the plague into an end. The the, the makkah stopped. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu responds to the tefillahs of the righteous people immediately. And everything just froze in its place. The rain stopped. One of the reasons the rain stopped is HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't want the people to benefit from the rain. There was rain amongst the hail. And the thunder stopped. And the hail froze mid-ear as well. The So the two main parts of this maka was the sound, like we mentioned before, and the hail. Now the sounds were suspended and they were released later in the forty-one years later in the time of Yehoshua. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Before we get the, that, that's not the sounds. That's the hail. The hail, the the was was not released in the time of Yehoshua. The hail was released. Um, I apologize. In the time of Yehoram, Yehoram was Yehoram ben Achav. He was a wicked uh, king of Aram, and he put a siege around the the uh, around Bnei Israel, and uh, the food was very scarce. You're talking about the sixth year of the siege where the Jews were starving. There, It came to a point where people were eating their children, like complete starvation. And the king Yoram sent a messenger to the prophet, to the Navi Elisha, and he said that the idea was to, that he was going to execute the prophet. And Elisha prophesied, and he says, tomorrow at this time, the measure of flour will be sold for one shekel. And the two measures of barley will also be sold for a shekel, meaning it was a very, very low price. They were at a famine. Everything was extremely rare or not in existence. And if it was, it was an ex- sold at an extremely high price. But that's what he said, what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, at that time, there were four people that had saras, uh, leprosy. And they were outside. The law is from the Torah that if you have saras, you have to be outside the, you know, the city. And they were outside the city and they were, discussing them says that they were starving. There was a famine. They were like, why are we going to wait here to die? Let us go to the camp of Aram, the camp that's that siege, that put a siege around us. And if they let us live, good. If they're going to kill us, they're going to kill us. But there's only a matter of time. Why do we got to go suffer? So they went to this, uh, to, you know, to the place where where the siege was happening, where, where the entire army was around. And they look around and nobody was there. And they go from, t- the place was deserted. Not only was deserted, the guards weren't there, the soldiers weren't there, the general, there was nothing there. They left the food, they left the gold, they left the silver, they left everything and they ran. What happened was, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu opened up the heavens with the sounds that happened during this Makkah. 
The, the sounds that happened during this Makkah, 500 years later, started coming back again. And just for these, for the, for the, for the, for the soldiers of Aram that was, that were putting a siege around Kalalisrael. And they were so scared from this noise because it was this thundering noise. They thought there was huge armies that were coming with their horses and that's where there was like a stampede of noise. And that's where they thought the noise was. They got so scared that they dropped everything and they fled away. And because they fled away, now the siege stopped, and really, the what happened was, first, besides the fact that gold and silver was plentiful, everybody was able to get it, the amount of food that they had was so much that Elisha's prophecy came true, that they were able to get... <clears throat> Uh, you know, a measure of flour for a shekel and two measures of barley also for a shekel. That's what happened with the noise. With regards to the hail, that was released. It was again, everything was just like frozen in, in time when, when, when Moshe had been to put his hand, like this broken, just froze everything, the sound and the hail. The sound was 500 years later. The hail was, was pushed off for 41 years later until the time of Yehoshua ben Nun. In the time of Yehoshua, there were five Amorite kings that waged war against Kalal Yisrael. And Akadosh Baruch Hu promised Yehoshua, don't worry, don't be fearful, I'm gonna deliver them into your hands. And Yeshua attacked the enemies, and they were struck with confusion, and during that time, Akadosh Baruch Hu opened up the heavens, and the hail, these missiles came down, and destroyed the, the five Amorite kingdoms that were trying to wage war against Kalal Israel. How, that was not all the hail that was left. Some of these hailstones are still suspended to this day in the sky, the heavens, the atmosphere, the probably more accurately would be in, um, in the, in space, as we see, like, not to discuss it now, but many meteorites are actually made out of ice. But the, the Chazal tell us that this meteorite of ice, these hailstones of ice are gonna, are gonna finish falling by the time of Gog Umagog. That's when everything is going to come down the rest. So, Asks the Darish Mordechai, what's going on over here? Like, God doesn't have enough hail? Like, did it have to be suspended? Let the Maka go away. And then, you know, in the time of Yeshua, let the hail fall. In the time of Yoram, let the sound come, like a new sound. Why does it have to be that same exact sound, the same exact hail, that sort of frozen times for many, many, many years later? And answers the, the, the Darish Mordechai, that where did this hail come from? Where did the noise come from? Every groan of the Jewish people that they were groaning with, moaning with, with pain and frustration, that they were suffering under the torments of the Egyptian rule, that was taken and that was used. That same side, that same groan was used for the noise that HaKadosh Baruch Hu the Egyptians. Every tear that was fallen by the Jewish people when they were suffering under intense cruelty under the Egyptian rule was saved, put in a special place, and that was used to be the hails that's going to uh, get retribution for all the pain and suffering they caused for Kalal Yisrael. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took all this, and it's so dear to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, all the pain and suffering that we go through, that He puts it in a special place, and will use it at a later date for whatever reason that needs to be used. And there's another idea like this that was found in a Medrash, that the Romans captured Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel and Rabbi Shmuel Kain Gadol. Rabbi Shimon came from a, a long, uh, you know, line of princes. And Rabbi Shmuel was a Kohen, came from a line of Kohen. And the Caesar said, which one am I going to kill first? Rabbi Shmuel or Rabbi Shimon? 
And he said, which one do you choose? And each one said they want to choose first. They want to be the ones first. They couldn't come to a decision, so the, so the Caesar said, you know what? We're going to make a lottery. And they made a lottery, and Rabbi Shimon won the lottery, and he was going to be killed first. The Caesar commanded that the head of this, of, of, uh, you know, be cut off of Rabbi Shimon. And the head was cut off of Rabbi Shimon, and it rolled down. And Rabbi Shmuel Kain Gadol took the hold of Rabbi Shimon's head, and he started crying with bitter tears. How could the tongue that translated the Torah to seven, 70 languages now lick the dust? And the Caesar saw him, and he says, why are you crying for this man? You're going to be, you should be crying for yourself. You're going to be dead soon also. And Rabbi Shmuel answered, he says, my friend was greater than I in wisdom. And he was fortunate to ascend to the heavenly Shiva before I, and for that I cry. And the Zohar says on this story, that Rabbi Narai heard the sounds, something very interesting, the sounds of a ram, of rams crying for a lion that was engraved on the Kisei HaKavad, on the heavenly throne. Now what, what does that mean? So the Zohar explains that Rabbi Nechemia informed him that the cries that, you, that you're seeing and you're hearing is the cries of Rabbi Shmal. The cry, these cries that Rabbi Shmuel cried will never cease from the Kisei HaKavod until Hashem takes these cries and uses them as, as His final revenge against the nations of the world that, that destroyed the Jewish nation. And it's not just the cries of Rabbi Shmuel. It's all the Jews that cry throughout the generations or through all the persecutions. Those are all saved. And that's going to go and, and, and get that retribution in the end of days. You know, Rav Spira brings down a story from the Telsha Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Chaim Mordechai Katz. He went through the Holocaust, and unfortunately he lost 10 children in the Holocaust. And this, uh, you know, was related by Rabbi Mordechai, this story was related by Rabbi Mordechai Kamenetsky. Uh, Rabbi Mordechai Kamenetsky's father was Rabbi Benyamin. He used to learn in Chavrusa with one of the Rav Chaim Mordechai Katz's children. And Rav Chaim Mordechai Katz, lost 10 children, one of them was his chavrusa, one night, Rav Binyamin gets a phone call, in the middle of the night, and on the other line, is the Talsha Rosh Hashiva crying, and he, sa- and he says, I can't sleep, and you know, Rav Binyamin says, why can't you sleep? He says, he, and, and what I'm about to say, I can't understand it, but he goes and he says, one of my sons was your Harusa, and I forgot his name. I forgot my son's name, and he couldn't stop crying. What was his name? That's what he was crying for. And again, we can, you know, people that went through the Holocaust, they, bl- they, they blank things out. They, 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 they remove things from their memory. They can't, you know, you can't, you can't have that memory. Those cries, those tears that people cried during the Holocaust, during the pogroms, during the, you know, Times and times again throughout Jewish history, all those tears are saved up. No tear goes to waste. And those are the tears and the cries that HaKadosh Baruch Hu used for the hailstorm. And that's why the HaKadosh Baruch Hu saved everything in mid-ear. HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have created new hail. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created new sounds. But those sounds were created by the moaning, by the groaning, by the tears, by the frustration, by the difficulties that the Jewish people suffered in Mitzrayim. Those tears are not going to go to waste. Every single tear, every single had a purpose, and every single tear had a retribution. Now, to show you the power of a tzaddik that 
Only Moshe Rabbeinu had to raise his hands before even Davin, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu stopped everything immediately. This shows you the power of a tzaddik's prayer. This shows you the power of when a, when a righteous person prays, how quickly HaKadosh Baruch Hu answers. We see this also in the story of Choni HaMaka. Choni HaMaka, there was, during, in Eretz Yisrael, there was three years of famine. And it was a delegation sent to Choni HaMaka's, you know, home to say, please, please pray to God that we should have some rain. We're in a famine. We don't have any rain. So, Choni started praying for rain, but no rain happened. So Choni Amagal, where he later got his name, he drew a circle, a magal, a circle, and he stood inside it and he started praying to Akadish Baruch Hu. It says, Akadish Baruch Hu, again, don't try this at home, but it says, Akadish Baruch Hu, I'm praying over here and I'm not getting out of this circle until you answer my tefillah. And rain began to drip down. It was a little drizzle. So his students that came to, to ask him to pray, he says, he says, Rabbi, this is not the rain, this is not sufficient enough. Don't allow us to die from famine. So Choni Amalga goes up and he says, like, this is not the rain that I prayed for. And all of a sudden, this torrential downpour, destructive rain started raining down. And it was destroying, and Choni Amalga says, like, this isn't either the rain that I prayed for, I prayed for rain of blessing. And then the rain switched to a rain of blessing. And that Choni Amagal was able to go and bring rain from heaven. From just a prayer. Imagine the prayer of Moshe Rabbeinu. Imagine the prayer of the righteous people. And it's only Choni Amagal. We see also Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. Rabbi Hanina Bendosa was on traveling. And he had a container of salt with him. And it began to rain. And now what happens when salt and rain and water touch? The salt begins to melt. So Rabbi Hanina said, everyone's happy because it's raining. But Hanina is sad because the salt will dissolve. My salt will dissolve. What happened? If you call even that a prayer, the salt, the rain immediately stopped. When Rabbi Hanina Bendosa arrived home, he says, wait a minute, the whole world is going to be sad and Hanina is going to be happy. The rain again began to fall. To show you the power of the Amoran, the Tanaim, that they were able, imagine the power of Moshe Rabbeinu, that he, of the power of his prayer. Now, <clears throat> Moshe Rabbeinu prayed, and the hail stopped. So you would think, now it's time for Paro to fulfill his promise, let the people go. Let my people go. But Paro, his feeling of uh, wanting the Jewish people to leave did not last. And the second that the plague stopped, he was like, okay, Guess you're staying over here, right? The, the, all of us. And now, the truth of the matter was, he didn't, when he said, I'm gonna let you go, he meant that he was gonna let them go. But the second that the plague was removed, he forgot about all about his good intention. Rabbi Yerachim Lovitz says, this is the tendency of people. In a time of suffering, in a time of difficulty, we make great promises. Like, if you help me, I'm gonna do this. And if you help me, I'm gonna save this. And we, we're, and the second that we have, that freedom that Baruch Hu saves us and gives us good, whether it's emotionally, financially, intellectually, we find, whatever it is in our life that things are going well, we tend to forget about all the promises. Our situation is improved and we become entirely a different people. And this, you know, you think about Paro, about how can you renege on that? Like you, but the truth of the matter is Paro was convincing himself that he was really right. Because you know what Paro said? It's because you think about it. Like, there was plague after plague. And Paro says, okay, I am wrong. You're right. Just stop it. I'll let you go. I'll let you go. And then it stops. And he's like, no, not going to let you go. Change my mind. Not no kish kish. Can't do anything about it. Like, how do you do, how do you go from one end to another? And Paro had to convince himself that he was right. Because the arrogant Paro says, you know what? I, you know why? I'm not really so bad. Because I wanted only the hail and the thunder, the sound, to stop. 
I didn't want the rain to stop. This is Egypt. We need rain. We don't get rain out here. We survive over the Nile. You stop the rain. I didn't say to stop the rain. Must be. It was a force of nature. And he started making excuses and saying, this is not from God. So all of a sudden, he takes the information. He tries to figure out a way that he is right. And he plugs in that information. And now he says, I'm, I'm not a problem. And he's golden the way that he is. And this, with this information, we can begin to, to to understand the whole mindset of the Egyptians. How did the Egyptians go in and say, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu warned them, six for everything that he said was accurate. He says, by the way, take your animals, bring it inside. And they were like, nah, I think we're going to leave it out. How could you go and go and, and, and against such a warning of someone who is so consistently accurate? And the Ger Rebbe explains, says, what is Yiras Shemayim? What is fear of heaven? Fear of heaven means, says the Ger Rebbe, Simas Leiv. What's Simas Leiv? Simas Leiv means that you pay attention to which you know that is true. Meaning that there's two aspects over here. You have the information, but you also have to care about the implication of that information. Meaning that the Egyptians knew the information. They knew the statistics. They knew that Moshe was, you know, everything that he says, 10 for 10, everything, 6 for 6, everything he said was accurate. But they could not take that information and bring it into their heart. Yerushimayim is taking that information and bringing it, the information that many of us or all of us really, really know. But the difference is we don't bring it into our heart. That is the difference, and that's what happened over here during the Makkah of Bart. Everybody knew that what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying was accurate, but they couldn't translate it into internal understanding, into their heart, and saying, you know what, I'm wrong, they're right, let me change the way that I'm doing. Says the stipler, Kfira, heresy, is not a lack of wisdom, but it's a function of a person's will. If a person doesn't want to believe in something, they will make excuses on showing that it's not right. It's not about a lack of knowledge that you could say, oh, there's no God. It's the fact that you want to make, ex- you, you don't want to believe in it, so you'll make excuses to prove it that you are right. And this is the way that the wicked are. The Rishayim, the wicked people of this earth, they don't learn. The Medrash compares them to a storm in the sea. What happens in a storm in the sea? You have a wave. And the wave is thinking, I'm going to take over the entire land. And they try to take on the land, and then they get pushed back. And the next wave says, no, I'm going to take the land. And they try to, and they also get pushed back. And one wave after another, they don't learn from the other waves. They keep on saying, I'm going to take over the land. I'm going to take over the land. And they keep on getting pushed back. This is the way the wicked people are. Paro was arrogant. He thought that he would be able to win. He suffered a utterly ultimate destruction. Amalek didn't learn from him. Amalek was a story. Sichon didn't learn. Og didn't learn. Balak didn't learn. One nation after another nation after another. No one learned their lesson. And the reason why they don't learn the lesson is everybody thinks they're different. Everybody thinks that they're special. Everybody thinks that it doesn't apply to me because we all have excuses. We all have something that we could go and we could take away. And with this, I want to end with, with one point. Because I think this is a very powerful point. And something that Rabbi Fran brings down. That you look at Bilam. What's going on with Bilam? Like, how could he? Cont- He's an advisor, and he advised Paro. Hey, leave it out. You know, we'll show them. It's about the principle of the matter, right? Because the principle is what destroys mankind. And Bilam says it's about the principle. How could he be so dumb, so ignorant, so so oblivious? Bilam was on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu. Like that's the level. Like how could he be so oblivious? 
And you look at Bilam's behavior profile throughout the Torah, this is the way that he was always. Bilam wanted to curse the Jewish people. He asked God, can I do it? God says, no, don't do it. He says, okay. Another, you know, group came to him and says, Bilam, can you curse it? Bilam keeps on going to his bro. Can I do it? 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 When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? And he'll get his bro and says, fine, you want to go? Go. You know, that's where you go. But you're going to have to say exactly. Bilam did not get the hint. Like, it's not like this Baruch was like, you know, like, I said no. And be like, and keep on fetching, and then I get this Baruch says, fine, you know what? I just don't want to hear from you anymore. Just go. You know, like, it's, it's not the way that God works. God is not like a, a parent that has no, no patience over here. So what was going on with Bilam? And furthermore, Bilam gets on his donkey, starts traveling. The donkey starts veering off. Bilam hits it. It starts veering back on the track. The donkey starts veering off again a second time. To the point that it crushes Bilam's foot. Bilam hits it again. And then suddenly the, the, the donkey goes in the middle and then the donkey stops and Bilam starts hitting it. The donkey turns around and he says, what's up? Like, what's with the hitting? You were hitting me three times? Like, what's going on? You know, like, and, and Bilam's responding to the donkey like it's normal. Like, nowadays, if a car, if you have a new car and it starts talking to you and you're responding, alright, it could be, you know, and Tesla is only a matter of time before they're going to be like, you know, like you're like going fast and the car is going to be like, dude, slow down. You're going to get a ticket. There's a cops, you know, all over the place. And you'll be like, oh, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. Like now it's normal. Back then, there was no AI system that was placed. You could plug into the bottom of the donkey and with a GPS navigation, the donkey would like, you know, you could like talk to them. If a donkey talked to you, you have to start thinking, did I eat something that's druggy? Or did I smoke something that's druggish? Why am I talking to a donkey? What's going on over here? But Bilam started having a conversation. Didn't get it that something miraculous is happening over here. All until Hakadish Baruch opened up Bilam's eye, and all of a sudden Bilam saw that there was an angel, and Bilam's like, oh. Oh, okay, I get what's going on here. Like, now you got it? Like, what's going on with you, Bill? I'm like, what, you can't get that you, you, you don't realize it? And the real, re- the reason why Billum doesn't get it is because Billum's problem was he didn't stop to think. The Chafetz Chaim explains this. And he says, you look at the story of Billum, of the, 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 you know, the parasha over there where it speaks about the story. There is no break in the Sefer Torah, meaning in the Sefer Torah you have a break, uh, which is in the Chumash it's symbolized by Samach or Pei, but in the in the um, Torah it, there's if you look in the, in the Sefer Torah the way that's written there is an actual blank space. Says the Chavetz Chaim, what was the purpose of this? The purpose of this was Moshe that when Hakadosh Baruch Hu was telling Moshe Rabbeinu what to write, Hakadosh Baruch Hu paused, and that gave Moshe time to contemplate to think about what he was just writing. That was the, the space over there. During the time of Bilam, there is no space because Bilam never stopped to think. Says the Chavetz Chaim, he just never stopped to think, and that's why his downfall was like there was a miracle after miracle happening. But if you don't stop for a moment to think about what's going on, you're not going to see it. You're just not going to see it. And when we look in our own lives, explains Rabbi Fran, how often do we stop to think? How we're always rushing from one thing to the next. We never have time. the The, the amount of time that it takes to do laundry is a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of what it used to take. If we want to prepare or cook a meal, it's a fraction of what it used to be. Not only that, you could order takeout, and you don't even have to cook. Not only that, you don't even have to say words 
to order that. You could just push some buttons on your phone and some nice man is going to come or woman is going to come and ring your bell and says, here is your food. The only thing that we're missing is for somebody to come and says, not only here's your food, but I'm going to help you chew it because God forbid you should work too much. No, stay on the couch. Let me go and just move your jaw up and down so that you could choke. There's only a matter of time where there's an app that can be like, you know, a pre-chewer that's going to come for you because, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to chew a piece of steak. Oh, we don't want you to tire yourself after all you did order with a few buttons over there gets very tired to do the scrolling thing right at one point technology came out i don't know what happened with this you didn't have to scroll with your hand samsung came out with this technology i don't know what this is you could scroll with your eyes that there is a camera on your phone and it sees when you get to the bottom of the screen it will go by itself up because god forbid you should scroll because that's Who's got the time, right? Like, we're so busy looking at other people's lives and TikTok and uh, whatever, Instagram and all the things. We don't have moving fingers. No, no, no. The only fingers we're going to move is when we're going to have friends and we're going to be like, no, 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 no. That's when we can move. Besides that, no, move up and down. No, no, I move side to side. Now, up and down, that's for poppers. My technology allows my eye to do the moving for me. You know, we don't even stop for a second to do anything because technology just just comes over, uh, over everything. Life has become so easy for us at this point. But do we spend more time thinking about life? We, it takes us less time to do everything. Literally everything in our life, it, it's less time. But our life is so full to the brim that we don't have a second to stop and think. We don't learn from Bilam the disease of not being able to stop and think that you could witness plague after plague, miracle after miracle, and say, I don't see it. You know, like, I just don't see what's going on. When I speak to people that don't believe in God, and I say, like, you don't see a miracle after a miracle, and I'm like, no, I don't see it. <sighs> if I would have an anger issue, I would have been arrested, because people would have gotten beaten. How could you? What? You don't see? Like, how stupid are you? Like, dumb, like, like, I idiot like just bad like no dog sit down no brain sit corner go don't understand conversation if you can't see miracles in your life if you can't see one sign that there is a god there is screws that are missing from your head like how is it possible how is it possible the answer is because you don't stop to think it's not because you're dumb it's not because you're an idiot no you're very you may be very smart the problem is you don't stop to think that's the issue Billum's issue is an issue that falls in each and every single one of us we don't stop to think and Rav Zevlef explains a very interesting Gemara. There's a Gemara in Brachos that says that if someone takes long steps, big steps, long strides, it diminishes their eyesight by one five hundredth. And what's the remedy? How are you going to fix it? Is to drink Kiddush wine. Now we understand this Gemara. What does that mean? You take big steps, you lose your eyesight, you need to drink Kiddush. How do you understand it? Rav Zevlef explains that if someone's constantly taking big steps in life, meaning that they're always in a rush, they're going from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, their vision is diminished because their perspective, their, their perspective on life becomes warped to a certain, they can't stop and think. You know what the remedy for that is? Explains Rav Zevlef. Kiddush. What's Kiddush? Kiddush is the separation. You ever look at what you're saying in Kiddush? It's a separation. Ben Kiddush l'chal. Ben 
being, being something that's sacred than something that's not sacred by holy and profane. The, you want to stop for a second and do kiddish because if you're always rushing, you have to stop and being like, what's real in life and what's fake in life? There's no businessman that said on his deathbed, I wish I would have done that deal. They could have lost a billion dollars in their deal, but that's not what they're thinking when they're away, when they're one step to the next world. They're speaking, thinking about family. They're, speaking, they're thinking about what they could have done to help people. They're thinking about the positive things, the important things in life. Why didn't they think about that early? And the question is, why didn't we think about that earlier? And the reason is, is because we're always rushing. We're always looking at the next thing. We always need to be out with our friends. We always need to be talking. We always need to be doing. We always need to be scrolling. We always need to be buying. We always need to be reviewing. We always have to be researching. And because we always bombard ourselves with information, whether it's good information or wasting time with TV, movies, games, or whatever it is, we waste our life because we don't want to stop and think. And that was the issue of Bilam. That was the issue of the Makas. That was the issue that people just could not, the Egyptians could not see it. You're talking about the miracle of hell. Like you can't get more miraculous than that. But they just couldn't see it because they couldn't stop and think. You look at the flip side. You look at Moshe Rabbeinu, the snad, the burning bush. That was burning for many years, according to opinion, right? The, the, why didn't nobody stop and look at it? The answer is nobody stopped to think we're too bombarded with our own issues. Rabbi Akiva saw you know, water being dripped in the hole. How many people passed by that spa? How many people said, you know what, maybe, how many people became Rabbi Akiva? Only one. You want to know the difference? It's because those people stopped and started thinking. What we have to do a lesson that at least we could take away is we have to stop and think in our own life. You're driving. You don't have to listen to music all the time. I, 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 you should listen to a share all the time on Torah anytime right, while you're driving. But it's also beneficial to pause that and just think about life just a little bit. Just ponder where you're holding in your life. What's important in your life? What's not important in your life? What should you do in your life? What shouldn't you do in your life? Many times we get so confused with our own life that we don't know which angle, which way we should go. We think that we have to get into another business. We think maybe we have to focus over here. And we don't stop and think, and maybe we have to focus on marriage. Maybe we have to focus on our children. Maybe we have to focus on uh, Pesach cleaning, right? Maybe we have to focus on like other stuff. But we can't stop for a second because we're too bombarded. So the one takeaway of the many takeaways that I hope that you take away from today is stop and think. Don't become a Bilam. Don't become a Paro. Look at your life and look at where you're holding. With that, let us open up to some questions. Okay, first question. Dear Rabbi, I am not happy where I am in my life. I know I'm doing things that Hashem is proud of. How can I not feel guilty. What do I do? I'm feeling so much guilt. I keep making the same mistakes. Okay. So it's hard for me to answer because I don't know what those mistakes are. Some of those mistakes might be something that I should say, ooh, you know, you got to do something different. But I'll tell you one thing that you should focus on because if you're constantly feeling down and you're constantly feeling in the bad place, which many of us fall into, right? Where we stop in our life and we're like, Okay, what we're doing now is let us look at where we are in our life. Lesson learned from today. And we look at our life and we get really depressed. We're like, wow, we're really bad people. Like, I am like, oh, this is wrong. And the 
answer is not always to look at the negative, not always to look at the bad, but rather we have to look at both. We have to look at what we're lacking, but we also have to look at what our successes are. Many times, many of us have so many successes that we don't even realize. Why is it important to look at our success? Because it gives us the power to move on and to be able to do more success. And the problem when we face and we only look at our negatives, we don't feel like we have the ability to accomplish anything. But if we start realizing we have so many positives, we have the ability to overcome those negatives. Okay, next. If one tries to believe and feel God and learns Torah to believe in Him, but sometimes doubts His power and existence, though one really does want to believe, does one then get get punished and is it to blame? So that's a great question. The um, What I would recommend is there's a little bit of guidance needed during that time. It's a normal thought to have, but it is a conversation that you should have with a mentor, with a rabbi, with somebody. You can reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you on this where, you know, like sometimes the information doesn't fully enter the right way. And we have to sometimes look, and I'll give you an example like this. Sometimes, uh, you know, if people are going to, let's say, to college and they're studying for a certain topic and they can't seem to get it, one of the tricks is to get a certain, to get a certain topic or to understand something is to look at it from a different angle. We get very frustrated when we try to memorize something, we try to learn something, and we kind of keep on going the same path and it's just not going in. The answer, or one of the answers, is to look at it from a different angle and all of a sudden you're able to understand it and it sort of just clicks. So in this situation, what I would recommend is to look at it in a little bit of a different angle, but sometimes you do need a little bit of guidance to show you what the different angle is. Next question. Although Ninveh did do tshuva due to Paro's past experience with the past 10 Makos, why did he and his city end up going back to their ways and ultimately get destroyed? Oh, so that's a good question on Ninveh. So, uh, you know, the the way that it works, not only in the wicked, but also in the righteous, is that we do tshuva, but we tend to forget very quickly the bad, very quickly the punishment. And unfortunately, we don't, or fortunately, we don't want HaKadosh Baruch to keep on sending us punishment. And if the way that we have to do is constantly keep us in check. And if we look at our life, throughout the course of our lives, we were strong in one area at one point, then we can weaken that area in a different area. And like It's sort of like a fluctuation because it all depends on what the, our relationships are, what our knowledge of Torahs are. And sometimes we lose and we get weak on certain things and we get strong on certain things and, and it fluctuates. And the problem is that we really should be getting strong in all areas, but we tend to put our focus in one area and we tend to forget about the other area. So, this is a you know problem in Ninveh, not only that, a problem in everybody where we tend to forget where and how we came from and where we need to go. So a really good focus is to do just sort of like a well, it's called a husband and nefesh, and be like, okay, why did I fall in this area and why did I grow in this area? And try to like think a little bit and say where not not only think about where you're holding, but how you got there is also very, very important. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, maybe Bilam found a talking donkey normal due to the black magic in Egypt. So that's a great question. So maybe the, like, during the time they were able to, like, you know, do something that it wasn't so abnormal. So magic is very interesting when you learn about magic. There's different things that you can, um, do with magic, depending on the magic, whether it's through, uh, uh magic through Shadim or magic through, through actual sorcery. The, there's a few things that cannot be done through, through magic. I have never learned anywhere that you can communicate with animals through 
magic. Meaning that if an animal starts talking to you, this was not the norm and this should have, you know, sparked some interest and be like, hmm, something is awful here. Okay. Uh, what is the purpose of the Safer Kabbalah? And what is it exactly in sh- short? Okay. I'm not exactly sure what you mean by Safer Kabbalah. I would imagine because we spoke about the Zohar, you may be referring to that. Um, so the, the idea behind Kabbalah is there's different levels to understanding Judaism, right? There's technically four. There's the Pardes, the Pshat, Ramas, Drush, and Said. So Said, the idea behind the Kabbalah is to understand things in a way that... M- can be very confusing if you don't know what you're doing, but also can show clarity to so many things, meaning that Kabbalah shows you the underlining reasoning of certain things. It's like the secrets of certain things. I'll give you an example. Like, so an aspect of Kabbalistic idea is, is let's say, reincarnation, Gilgulim. So people, you know, have suffering that they go through in their life, and they're like, what's going on? Comes Kabbalah and say, you know, like in an, in almost a simple way, but like this could be a reincarnation, meaning that in a previous life, this person, you know, did X, Y, and Z, and now this is why they're going to suffering. So Kabbalah brings sort of a realization and understanding to something on a completely different level. Now, this is not just in our suffering. It also understands, you know, Kabbalah through Avodah Hashem. When you're davening, I'll pee, you know, like, like the, the, you know, the different levels of Kabbalah, of, you know, different Sidurim of Kabbalists, which obviously we, we can you know even begin to, to scrap the scratch the level is you begin to understand the shameless accusation the the name why things were said in a certain way what the thoughts that we're supposed to have meaning that you're taking the information and you're delving into it into the depths of reality that it exists okay final question we have is how can i connect to shabbos on shabbos so that's a great question it could be Many, many different things that you can connect to it. But I think the probably one of the best ways to connect to it, first of all, it depends where you are. If you're single, then I would say you should go to families that can, you know, that, that obviously, you know, do Shabbos. So it makes it easier. But as a, as a blanket statement or an answer to that question, how can I connect to Shabbos is learn about Shabbos. The more that you learn, the more that you can, uh, you know, connect. But okay. That, uh, oh, yeah, that was the last question. Okay. Thank you all for the beautiful blessings and the nice words that you said that I skipped over here because I only said the questions, but thank you very much. And thank you all for joining. If we do not um, have a class before uh, Pesach again, may you all have an uplifting, amazing Pesach that we should have the really the ultimate redemption at this time, but even on a different level, we should have our own redemption that each and every single one of us need to go through something and we're going through something. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu give us, just like He took us out of Mitzrayim, and see us in Mitzrayim during that time, may we go out of our Mitzrayim that we're dealing with at this time. Thank you all for joining. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.